The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we are still in this study of verses 9 to 21, a section of Scripture that we have entitled, The Gospel-Shaped Life or Gospel-Shaped Relationships. And I am running out of ways to introduce these messages uh, because we're just in the same section over and over and over. So we're just going to get right to it. Let's read it. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never Take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Twenty-five instructions. 25 admonitions, 25 divinely inspired principles and standards that God holds us to as believers. These principles really frame up and shape the supernatural Christian life. If you're here today and you know Christ and you love Christ and you say the, the gospel has transformed you, then this is how your life is going to look. This is how our life at Maranatha Bible Church is going to look Because Paul wants us to understand that salvation is designed to produce in us unmistakable patterns of holiness and unmistakable patterns of righteous living. None of us are going to perfectly live out these requirements. None of us here this morning are going to perfectly match uh, an adherence to these qualities, but these are the qualities we strive for. These are the attributes that we seek. These are the things that we pursue individually and within our families and within this church family. This is what we strive for. We've seen seven of these already, seven admonitions that frame up the gospel-shaped life, and we're going to look at three more this morning, three more evidences of the gospel-shaped life and gospel-shaped relationships. So let's dive right into this. Number eight is found at the end of verse 11, and we're going to call this one a servant's heart, a servant's heart. We looked at the first two in verse 11 last week, not lagging behind a diligence and fervent in spirit. At the end of verse 11 comes this little phrase, 
serving the Lord. If you're a Christian, your life can be defined by that phrase right there. You can boil your life essentially down as a believer to that simple yet profound phrase, life as a believer is about serving the Lord. Paul uses a word here, serving, that is the word duleo, where we get our word doulos, or the the word doulos, which is the Greek word for slave. And so, Paul actually pulls out some slavery imagery here to communicate the kind of mentality that we need to have in our relationship with the Lord. A slave was one who served their master. A slave was one who did his master's will. A slave is one who met the demands and the commands of their master. And and Paul uses that exact phrase, and he pulls it in here, and he says, as a believer, you can boil your life down to a slave-master relationship. You're the slave. I'm the slave. God is our loving master. Do you think of yourself this way? Do you think of yourself as a servant of the Lord? That's the way Paul thought of himself. If you begin every book that Paul wrote, if you look back to almost every book that he wrote, in the very first one or two sentences of those books, he almost always begins with that wonderful little phrase, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. You see, when Paul thought about his life and when he began to process what had happened to him through the gospel, the most fundamental thing he could say about his life was, I'm just a slave of Christ. Do you think of yourself that way? Who do you serve? Who do I serve? If someone were to assess your life, if if God were to do an assessment upon you, How would you meet that evaluation? If someone were to evaluate you, are you seen as someone who is essentially serving yourself and living for yourself, or can your life be seen as a life dedicated to service to the Lord? Go back up to chapter 12 and verse 1, the very first verse in this new section in Romans. You remember chapters 1 through 11 are all doctrine. When we come to chapter 12, he turns the corner and moves into the practice. And the very first thing that Paul wants us to understand as we embark upon this new section in Romans, this practical section, is at the end of verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. After 11 chapters, after 11 chapters of the most profound description of the gospel anywhere in the Bible, Paul says when you get this and it grips your life, then you're going to understand that you are first and fundamentally a servant of the Lord. And you're going to approach your life as if everything in your life is an act of service and worship to Him. He calls this your spiritual service of worship. Your logikos service of worship. Where we get our word logical. 
It is the only logical response to the gospel. It is the only rational or reasonable response to the gospel that when you truly understand what God has done in you through the gospel, through Christ, the only response you can give to Him is complete and total sacrifice and service. That's what it means to be a Christian. Someone who is mindful of the mercies of God has only one logical response, is that that we would serve the Lord who has provided the greatest service to us all. We said this a number of months ago. We said God wants all of you. He wants every aspect of you, every part of you, every, every nuance of you, your emotions, your desires, your motivations, your actions, your words, your attitudes, everything about you. God wants all of it. He doesn't want a slice of your life. He doesn't want just part of you on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. He doesn't want just kind of this half-hearted attempt to serve Him. He wants your life. This is what it means to be totally devoted in service to the Lord. And if you read the Scriptures, you you find that this is the mentality throughout the, the pages of the Word of God, that this is what defines a believer, Listen to 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. To serve a living and true God. Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Joshua 24, verse 15. You might have this hanging in your house, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 28, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable servants with reverence and awe. This is the heart of being a believer, that we offer acceptable service with reverence and awe to the one true and living God. Is that you? Is that you? You might be able to actually wrap up every one of these 25 admonitions, 24 of them, under this one. I mean, just look at the list. We just read through them a few moments ago. You could actually wrap up every single one of these admonitions under the banner of service to the Lord. For example, verse 9, why should we let love be without hypocrisy? Because we serve the Lord. Why why should we, in verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love? Why do we serve one another? Why do we give preference to one another within the family of God? It's because we serve the Lord. Why, in verse 14, do we bless those who persecute us? Because we serve the Lord. Why, in verse 16, are we of the same mind towards one another? Because we're serving the Lord. Why, in verse 17, do we never pay back evil for evil? It's because we're serving the Lord. And so we might be able to, as I said, boil down the Christian life to this very fundamental reality, that we are about serving the Lord. Spurgeon said it this way, he says, I long for nothing more earnestly than to serve God with all my might. Can you say that? Can you say, I want nothing more than to give my life to the service of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ?
It doesn't mean you have to go into full-time ministry. It doesn't mean you have to be a pastor. It doesn't mean any of that. But it does mean that you view all of your life, from your work to your family to your relationships to your attitudes to what you do with your money and how you spend your time, you view all of that through the lens of I'm serving the Lord. So who are you serving? One of the most profound marks of a gospel-shaped life is service to Him. Number nine. By the way, every one of these could be an own, its own sermon. And so I'm trying to balance how much do you say about these things versus not making this a two-year series. So this is the struggle. Let's move on. Verse 12, number nine. A joyful hope. A joyful hope. What, what else happens to someone who's been marked by the gospel? What else happens in the life of someone who is truly and genuinely marked by a right understanding of the work of Christ in their life? How are you going to identify them and what will they manifest as evidence of the fact that the gospel has truly impacted them? They're going to have, verse 12 says, a joyful hope. Look at that first phrase in verse 12, rejoicing in hope, rejoicing in hope. I love this hope. That wonderful triad of Christian attributes, faith, hope, and love. Paul referred to it at least 36 times in his writings. 36 times Paul had to mention this marvelous attribute of the Christian life because I don't think Paul ever fully got over this. Hope. Real hope. Genuine hope. Before you came to Christ, and if you are here today and you don't know Christ, we had and you have no hope. Ephesians 2 verse 12 says that. Paul says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. And so for us who are Gentiles, before Christ came, there was no hope. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, and if you're here today and you do know Him, but before you came to know Him, you were without any hope. You were cut off. I was cut off from God without any hope in this world, without any desire or willingness to please Him, without any opportunity to have hope after this life. There was nothing that we could look forward to. No hope. And then Christ comes. And then you've been invaded by Christ and sovereign grace has drawn you to him and he's, he's given you a new heart and regenerated you and given you a new life and now you have pulsing through your, your veins this new spiritual sustenance and this new spiritual life and suddenly life looks different and you have hope, a hope you've never had before. This hope is something that the world knows nothing about. We've talked about it a number of times here. Worldly hope is filled with an element of doubt. Worldly hope is defined by an element of uncertainty. The world doesn't know. You know, I, I hope I get a job. I hope I get a good-paying job. I, I, hope I, I hope I get a raise at my job. I, I, I hope it's not going to get below minus 20 this week. We have no concept of 
whether it's going to happen or not. This is worldly hope. This is how the world looks at things. It wishes against all odds. It's desiring things that may be very uncertain and doubtful. This, this is how the world thinks of hope. It's just something that they're clinging on to, desperately hoping that something will happen, and that's not biblical hope. You need to strike that understanding of hope from your mind. That is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is certain, rock, solid unmovable, and it's always tied to the future. Mark that down. Biblical hope is not tied to the present. Biblical hope is tied to the future, and the future promises of God that He has given to us as believers, which are true and reliable and trustworthy, and because they're based upon the authoritative Word of God, we have hope in the future. Hope has to do with what God has promised us, but, we, but what we have not yet seen or experienced. And Paul's point here in this opening phrase of verse 12 is that your hope, listen to this, your joy and rejoicing in this life is tied to that hope. Your joy in this life, my joy in this life is not tied to circumstances. It's not tied to the present Your joy, your ultimate happiness, your ultimate ability to find joy in this life is not connected to your circumstances. And the world doesn't get this. This is what the world is after. The world wants happiness. I heard it again this week. I just want to be happy. And the person who said it is looking for their happiness in this life. True joy is not connected to the present. True, lasting, genuine joy is connected and tied to and anchored in the future for us who are believers. Our hope in Christ is the basis of our rejoicing. We don't rejoice at hope. We rejoice in hope. We don't rejoice at the thought of hope. We rejoice by the means of hope. We rejoice because of hope. And hope is the ground or the cause of our joy as believers. This is so good. You have to understand this. And and this needs to get traction in your life. This is where your theology meets your life. Because let's face it, life is not easy. It's hard. Life is a challenge. And your trials need to be illuminated by this biblical reality. And here's the problem. Our problem is we tend to have our joy evaporate when we lose our hope. And so what happens is when you begin to get into those trials and those hardships tend to dominate your life, what what tends to happen or what can happen even in the life of a believer is we begin to focus on the external. We look around us. We see what's around us. We get focused on the horizontal. And mark my words, if you do that, your joy will evaporate. Always. Our hardships tend to diminish, though, when we consider them against the backdrop of what's in store for us. Let me say that again. Our hardships tend to diminish when we consider them against the backdrop of what's in store for us. 
I think if we're all honest, we will all admit that we tend to lose sight of hope. Let's just be honest. The paychecks are short. There's physical problems. There's broken relationships. There's difficulties that all of us have to deal with. And what we tend to do is we tend to set our sights upon those troubling circumstances instead of fixing our eyes upon our real and lasting hope. And so what happens is we end up having this spiritual myopia, the spiritual nearsightedness, the spiritual short-sightedness that all we can see is our circumstances and our trials and our tribulations around us. I think I've told you before about my previous life as a physiologist, teaching pilots about physiological problems in an aircraft, and one of the problems that they have to deal with at times are visual illusions, and some of the visual illusions that they'll need to deal with is something called empty field myopia. When, when you just get up in an airplane and you look out a window and there is nothing to see, no, there's nothing. There's no clouds, there's no birds, there, there's no other, there's nothing. And so you look out an aircraft and, and your eyes have nothing to focus on and so where do they focus? They focus right here in front of you. Focused close, nearsighted. It's a danger for, an air, for a pilot. There's something else called the screen door effect. Go home today, try it. You stare out a screen door. And you let your eyes go kind of lazy after a while, and where do they focus? On the screen. Get in an aircraft, there's nothing else to see outside, so your eyes focus on what's in the screen, like that dead bug on the windshield, whatever else there is to see, and your eyes get focused short-sighted right about six feet in front of you. That's what we're like. Sometimes we do that as believers. We get, we get so short-sighted in this life and we get so focused on our trials and our tribulations and we get so focused on our circumstances and our, and our joy tends to evaporate because we've lost sight of what is out there and what's in our future and the hope before us. And so some of you here this morning, you're, you're fighting for joy. And you probably may not be able to say what Paul says in verse 12, rejoicing in hope. Perhaps you're here today and you're saying, I don't have a lot of joy. It's minus 20, whatever it's going to be. It's cold and it's snowy and, and I've got this situation going on in my life. And you don't even know, Todd, the half of what's going on in my life. Well, let me help you get your eyes a little bit up. Go back to Romans chapter 5. I'll do a little Bible study with you just for a few moments this morning. I, I want to give you some reasons why you can rejoice in hope. I want to I just take you through a few passages, and, and I, what I want to do is I want to get your eyes above yourself, and I want you to get your eyes above your circumstances, and I want to get your eyes outside of the aircraft, and I want you to get your eyes above. So let me take you to a few places that help you understand the hope that we really have. Verse 1, Romans chapter 5, therefore, having been justified by hope, we have, or by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, Paul kind of wraps up the, the last couple chapters. He's been talking about justification, that marvelous doctrine of God declaring sinners righteous, not because they are, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness, and this marvelous reality that because of justification, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We used to be at war with Him and Him with us, but there's been this marvelous transaction which has resulted in our justification, which brings to us peace, not just subjective internal peace, but an objective external peace in our relationship with God, and one of the consequences of that justification is hope. Look at verse 2. 
through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. We exalt in this. We exalt in hope, circle it, of the glory of God. Now, quick English lesson. You understand the difference between exalt with an A and exalt with a U? They're different. They're not the same word. When you encounter that word exalt with an A, you're talking about ascribing praise to something or, or describing a, a, a tribute to something or worshiping something. That's exalt with an A. You're, you're declaring something to another person or being. In this case, it's God. We're, we exalt God. We worship God. We pay tribute to God. We extol God. We exalt Him with an A. That's different than exalt with a U. Exalt with a you is this inward emotion of joy, this inward expression of, of happiness, this inward emotion of, of gratitude and gladness and joy and rejoicing. And, and Paul says here in verse 2, we exalt. We have joy. Same thing he says in Romans 12, verse 12. Rejoicing in hope. Why do we have joy as believers? Why do we exalt in hope? It's the hope of the glory of God. So what he's saying here is that when you come to truly know Christ and you begin to look at your life properly, you begin to see that you are destined for not only beholding God's glory and observing God's glory and seeing God's glory, you get to participate in it. And you get to experience it. And you get to share in it. And you get to have this tremendous expression of the glory of God manifest in your life. which is incredible because we used to once fall short of it. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now as a result of justification by the Lord Jesus Christ, you are now promised a share in that glory. It's marvelous. You can rejoice. Of course you can rejoice. Of course you can have joy in this life because you are on your way to sharing in the marvelous expression of the fullness of God's attributes. doesn't mean you become God, but it means that you get to share in this full manifestation of the glory of God. You see why you can rejoice? Go over to chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, let me show you another reason you can rejoice. You can rejoice because of the hope of glory, first of all, but you can also rejoice, chapter 8 tells us, because of a coming resurrection, because of this coming resurrection, this glorified body. We worked through this a number of uh, months ago, verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so Paul essentially puts your sufferings and his sufferings and the trials of life on a scale, and then he puts on the other side of the scale the glory that is to be revealed to us, the, the future glory that awaits all believers. He puts them on the scale, and he lets go, and he says there's no comparison, none what far outweighs 
your sufferings, what far outweighs your tribulations, what far outweighs the difficulties of your life is the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says you, you shouldn't even bring them in the same sentence. They're not even to be compared with each other because the glory of God is so much more great than your present troubles. Why is that the case? Look at verse 19. Four. Here's the reason. Notice how verse 19 begins. Four. Here's the, here's, the, here's the reason for why our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. Four, verse 19, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the, here it is, the revealing of the sons of God. The revealing of the sons of God for the creation has subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Here it is. That the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. Paul says creation is longing for your future glory. Creation can't wait For the day when you and I as believers receive our glorified bodies because when that happens, creation itself will be liberated from the troubles and the trials and the afflictions of the curse brought upon it. Verse 23, look what he says, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body. This is what we long for, is it not? The redemption of our bodies, the glorification of this earth-bound, sin-filled body. Paul says, this is what we're longing for. This is our hope. This is what we're anticipating, this incredible time when we receive adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. I can't wait. I turn 48 in two weeks. Things hurt more now. Woke up today with a sore knee from working out yesterday. I I never used to have that. I can't wait. I can't wait for an upgrade. I can't wait to trade this body in. I can't wait to be rid of sin. I can't wait to be delivered from this fallen world and to be given a glorified body. Look at verse 24. For in hope we've been saved. Notice how many times hope. In hope we have been saved, but hope that is, not, that is seen is not hope for he who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. You see what he's saying? He says, if your hope is in the things that you see, that's not genuine hope. Real hope is in what you can't see. So can you rejoice? You better believe you can rejoice. You've got the hope of a future glory. You've got the hope of a future resurrection. Go over to Romans 15. Let me show you another thing you can hope for. Romans chapter 15. Another reason we can hope. Why else can we have hope in this life? Why else can we not have our hope defined by the present? Look at Romans 15, verse 4. 
For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. <laughs> let, me, let me say that again. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. But, but beloved, do, do you know what you're holding in your hands this morning? Do you realize that in that book, in the pages of that Scripture, is the Word of God? It's living. It's active. It's powerful. It's authoritative. It's capable of doing all that it promises to do. This book will change your life. Man was not destined to live on bread alone, but on the very Word of God. And there's hope when you have written before you the very Scriptures. It's incredible. God didn't just give you this book to inform your thinking. He gave you this book to give you hope because in this book is described your future glory. Tremendous. You can have hope because of your future glory, because of your future resurrection, because of the promises contained in the Word of God. Look down to verse 13. Why else can you have hope? Verse 13, you can also have hope. Paul says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. Here it is. Here's the connection. Joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) You see it? Why can you have joy in this life no matter what's going on in your circumstances? You can have joy in this life because you have the power of the Holy Spirit resident within you, living within you, dwelling within you, comforting you, instructing you, teaching you, guiding you, equipping you, giving you joy. Do you realize that? God has taken up residence inside of you. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives as a third member of the Trinity in you. And you say you have no joy? God Himself dwells within you? Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Why do we have hope? Why do we have joy and hope? Because we have a future glory, because of a future inheritance, because of the authoritative scriptures that promises all these things because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Let me show you just one more. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I preached this message on Tuesday, this section of scripture on Tuesday at the funeral here because I wanted the people here to understand that there's hope beyond this world. This room was packed on Tuesday, 250 people here, and they needed to hear of hope. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love that phrase. He's caused us. He's done it. It's all of Him. It's all of His grace. Salvation is entirely a work of God. He has caused us to be born again. You don't cause yourself to be born again. You understand that, right? None of you thought yourself into existence. Someone else determined that you would be born And that's how salvation works. You did not wake up one day and decide that you needed to be saved. God in His sovereign grace penetrated your hard heart. He did a work in you and He caused you to be born again to a living hope. 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And notice the reason for this. Look at verse 4. What, what, what is the living hope tied to? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. That's incredible. Perhaps you've received an inheritance when someone has passed away. I don't care how much of an inheritance you receive in this life from a previous relative. Even if it's $10 million, that's peanuts compared to this inheritance, which Peter describes as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Last time I checked, your $10 million doesn't meet those requirements. It's not imperishable, it's not undefiled, and it's not unfading, but there is for believers an inheritance that is all of those things. So what do you do with it? Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. You say, well, yeah, yeah, but I'm in the midst of trials. Oh, keep reading. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. doesn't matter. You still rejoice because you have a living hope that promises you a heavenly inheritance. You get the idea? Go back to Romans chapter 12. Because as I think, I think as Paul is writing that little phrase in verse 12, rejoicing in hope, I, I think he has to have all of that in mind. There, there are no circumstances, there are no tribulations that you will encounter in this life where your joy has to be extinguished. None. Because you have a joy and a hope that comes from something outside of this world, outside of this life, above you, outside of you. I remember reading a number of years ago a little incident about a passenger on a ship. Before the days of modern navigational aids, boats were equipped with two compasses, and one was fixed to the deck where the man at the wheel could see it, and the other compass was fastened up on one of the masts. And often a sailor would be seen climbing upon it to examine their course. And during one trip on one such boat, a passenger went to the captain and said, Hey, Captain, why do you have two compasses? And the captain says, This is an iron vessel, and the compass on the deck is often affected by its surroundings. But that's not the case with a compass on the mast. That one is above the influence of the iron, and we steer by the compass above. How do you steer your life? If you steer your life by the hope that you find in this world, by the compass that is around you, it will be influenced by this world. And your joy will be extinguished. But if you steer your life by the compass above, if you steer your life by the things that we just talked about that give you true hope, there's nothing that can quench your joy. So, Where's your hope? Where's your hope? Is it in the things of this world? Or can you say with Paul, I am rejoicing in hope? One more this morning. Number 10, a determined perseverance. 
not only a servant's heart and a joyful hope, but we also need to hear verse 12 about a determined perseverance. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. I find it very interesting that, that Paul goes right from rejoicing in hope to the very next phrase, persevering in tribulation. And I, and I have to imagine that they are connected, intimately connected, that, that there is a reason Paul throws these two phrases right next together. And I, and I can't have to guess that maybe at the, at the end of verse 12, he throws that other phrase devoted to prayer for the very same reason. Because your joy in hope and your perseverance in tribulation is oftentimes intimately connected to your prayer life. So he says, if you're going to live the gospel-shaped life, you're going to be rejoicing in hope and you're also going to be persevering in your tribulation, in your thlipsis. Thlipsis is a Greek word that means pressure. It means to, to press on upon you, to, to push hard upon you. It refers to any external pressure that comes upon you and presses heavily upon your life. It's the same word used in John chapter 16, verse 21. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish, the flipsis, the pain, the pressure. Tribulation is any kind of external pressure that comes upon you, whether trouble or distress or suffering or persecution or trials or tribulations, whatever it is, Paul says we persevere in those. Every one of you here this morning can identify some of the tribulations in your life. If each of you were given a microphone, you had 10 minutes, you could clearly tell every one of us some of the troubles and pressures and hardships and difficulties that you're facing. It is not foreign to the Christian life. And some of you are facing troubles this morning just because you're living in a broken world. And some of you are facing trouble this morning because there's busted relationships. Some of you are facing tribulation this morning because of financial problems or health problems. There's trouble in this life. There's trouble being a believer. There's trouble by living in this world. There are tribulations even by being a Christian within the church. I'll just be transparent with you. Some of the hardest and most difficult tribulations for me have not come from this world. I really don't endure that much persecution. But I'll tell you, some of the hardest pressure and difficulty in my life comes from those who call themselves believers. I have a file in my desk about that thick of emails, posts, hate mail. You're not immune just because you're a believer. And there is great trouble that comes in the Christian life. Acts 14, verse 22, Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You're not going to escape it. 
you will encounter tribulations. You're going to enter the kingdom of God, but it's going to be by suffering, and it's going to be by hardship, and it's going to be by difficulty. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's guaranteed. It will happen. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not strange. And if you view your life as, 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 and the trials within it as something that's foreign or strange to you, you, you have a wrong perspective of life. It's full of trials. It's full of tribulation. But Paul says in this phrase here in verse 12, he says, we persevere in them. We persevere. Hupomone. We, we, we bear up under it. We remain up under it. We, we stand up under it. We hold out under it. We endure. We bear up despite the difficulty, despite the suffering. We, we put up with it. We endure it. Why? Because of joy in the midst of all of it. We persevere in our trials with joy. And, and you need to understand, I'm sure you do, that this is counterintuitive. That the world doesn't think this way. The world just wants to grab the eject candles and punch out and say, I'm out of here. I'm done with this. Not us as believers. We persevere. We persevere under the hardships and under the pressures. We don't throw the towel in. We continue on. We bear up under these difficulties. Go back to Romans chapter 5. We were just there a few moments ago, but let me take you back there because the, the part that we started reading, we didn't actually finish and we really need to finish it because Paul connects for us perseverance in trials and joy and hope. He brings it all together back in Romans chapter 5. So we looked at the end phrase of verse 2. He says, we exult with a U in hope of the glory of God, but we need to keep reading. Verse 3, and not only this, but we... We also exalt in our tribulations. Whoa. I was with you, Paul, up to that point. I was tracking, Paul. I'm, I'm good. We exalt in the glory of God. I'm, I'm good with that. And all of a sudden, you just threw a wrench in my thinking here because suddenly you're talking about that same kind of joy in the midst of our tribulations. You're off your rocker, Paul. It's actually the same word. We exalt, verse 2, in the hope of glory, and we exalt in our tribulations. He brings the exact same word to describe the kind of joy that you have knowing that there's coming future glory. He uses that same word to describe the joy that we have in the midst of tribulations. Why? What kind of twisted, seemingly messed up thinking is this? You've got to keep reading. Look at the next word, knowing, <laughs> knowing. There is something that you and I know about tribulations and trials that the world has no clue of. That is a critical word right there. Paul says, we exalt in our tribulations because we know something. We understand something. There's something the world doesn't even grasp about those tribulations. But we as believers, we know something about that tribulation. 
What is it? Into verse 3, that kind of tribulation brings about perseverance. Brings about perseverance. Now, if you're thinking, you might be thinking, wait, Paul, didn't you just say in Romans 12, 12, that we're supposed to persevere in tribulation? And here you say in verse 3 that tribulation produces perseverance. So which one is it? Paul, you seem to be a little confused because in the one hand, you're saying that it's, it's perseverance that leads to tribulation or endures in the tribulation. And on the other hand, it's the tribulation that produces the endurance. So what is it? Class? Yes. Both. Tribulation develops perseverance so that you have perseverance to endure your tribulation. Get it? God has you under the pressure. He has you enduring your trials. He has you living in trials and tribulations and hardships to teach you perseverance so that when those future trials and tribulations come, now you have perseverance to endure those trials and tribulations. It's both. It's through suffering that your spiritual muscles are developed. In other words, trials produce endurance so that you can have more endurance when trials come. Trials are to believers what workouts are to the athletes. No athlete's going to go run a marathon, compete in the Olympic Games without a little bit of pressure and trials and training and stressing their bodies. And the same thing is true in your life. You're not going to compete in the hardships and the difficulties of life unless you've first been tested and endure in the trials and difficulties of life. The world doesn't know that. The world has no clue about that. James 1, verse 2 and 4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. What else does it do? Look at verse 4. And perseverance brings about proven character. (laughs) You see, the world doesn't get this. The world has no concept of this. The world doesn't want its character shaped by adversity. Oh, but we do. We understand that an easy life does nothing to produce character. If you're here today and you're trying to get through life with as little adversity as possible, if you're trying to skate through life with as little tribulation and as little pressure and as little hardship as possible, and at the same time you want to mature in your character and grow and become more like Christ, it's not going to happen. You want that character, you want that growth, you want that maturity, you want that conformity to the image of Christ, it's going to take place on the anvil of adversity. It always does. There's no shaping of your character without some fire. There's there's, there's no shaping of your, your character without some adversity. There's no shaping of your character without some suffering because character is formed in the heat of suffering and character is forged in the crucible of affliction. So you say, Todd, you have no idea what I'm going through this morning. You have, you have, you have no clue. If you, if you knew what was going on in my life. No, let me just say this. Here's my response to you. Brother, sister, I'm sorry. I'm, 
I'm praying for you. I love you. Whatever we can do to support you and minister to you this, during this time, we will do that. But you're in character school. You're in character school. And I'm in character school. And there's things we need to learn and there's things we need to be shaped and there's parts of our life that, that need to be honed and perfected and God wants to make us more holy and he wants to make you a better husband and he wants to make you a better wife and a better mother and a better father and a better child and a better employee and a better single person and a better, the list goes on and on. What else does this do? Verse 4 ends... And proven character brings you hope. <laughs> right back where we started from. <laughs> Don't you love this? Right back where we started. All of this tribulation and all this perseverance that we bear up under it with and all the character that comes with that has an impact in our life of giving us hope. <laughs> Which is what Paul wants us to know. So go back to verse 12 of Romans chapter 12. What does the gospel-shaped life look like? It's one where you're serving the Lord. And it's one where you're rejoicing in hope. And it's one where you're persevering in whatever trials and tribulation God brings your way. And next week we're going to see how it also manifests itself in a life devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. How's your life? Are you shaped by the gospel? Or is Christianity just something you say, you know, I go to church, I do my religious thing. No, that, if that's you, you're missing the heart of being a believer. It's meant to transform how you live. And so may God have his work in our hearts and our lives. Father, we need to hear these things. We confess, Father, that often we don't rejoice in our tribulations. We, we confess that oftentimes our, our hope is extinguished because of our failure to keep our eyes on the things above. And so, Lord, we, we want to be the kind of people that manifest the gospel on a daily basis. We want the presence of Christ and the power of Christ and the work of your Holy Spirit to be clearly evident in every part of our life. So, God, let us serve you with wholeheartedness. Let us have hope, joyful hope, in our future and Lord, may as we as a church family endure the trials and tribulations that you bring our way corporately and individually, may we be the kind of people who know what you're doing, trust you, lean on you, depend upon you, submit to whatever your work you're doing in our hearts and lives so that we can become more like Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. 
For permission, go to mbcmi.org.